What up, family? It's episode 95 of The Genius Life. Welcome aboard. What up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller you may have heard of, Genius Foods. On this episode of the show, I'm super excited to welcome to The Genius Life my good friend, Dr. Mark Hyman. I'm sure many of you are familiar with Dr. Hyman and his work. He is a, a leader in the field of functional medicine. He is the author of innumerable best-selling health books. And his latest book, Food Fix, is a very important work. It covers the connections between individual health and environmental health, economic health, animal welfare, soil health, and so much more. So over the course of the next hour in our wide-ranging, wide-spanning discussion, we're going to cover whether or not organic is better for you than conventional. We're going to talk about where meat production plays into climate change and environmental health. We're going to talk about um, the health of our soil. We're going to talk about animal welfare. We're going to talk about uh, economic disparity and food marketing and so much more. So I am super excited for you to uh, listen to this chat. It is a good one. Just before we dive in, this episode of the show is brought to you by my good friends at Ned. Ned makes a line of very high quality CBD infused products in a time where you can find CBD infused seltzers and body lotions and bath salts and um Gosh, you name it. I think it's really important to put your money uh, towards a higher quality product that does one thing and does it well. And among all of the CBD products that I've found, CB, uh, Ned not only is super transparent in their manufacturing process, but they make a very high potency tincture with about 1500 milligrams of um, full spectrum CBD in it dissolved in a solution of pure MCT oil. And I actually have a few bottles of that in my cabinet. I will take some before I go to sleep. Um, sometimes and uh, you know, I think the science still needs to catch up on the hype surrounding CBD But there's no shortage of anecdotes online of people self-treating anxiety sleep problems infl Inflammation pain and things like that So if you'd like to give anything that Ned produces a try All you got to do is go to helloned.com and use promo code genius and you'll get to save 15% off of your first order again, that's helloned.com promo code genius for some of the highest quality CBD products around. Now, can you feel it? We're just seconds away from my chat with Dr. Mark Hyman. Um, again, it's a really, really great conversation. He's the man. Um, but before we get to that, I want to give a shout out to Nick Josid. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but Nick wrote a wonderful review for the podcast on iTunes, which I encourage you all to go over and do. He wrote, I love podcasts, but I have never recommended one to anyone or left a review. This show is everything, though. I love the conversational tone of every interview. Max makes it so you feel you're right there in an intimate conversation. The sound is great. There's always awesome topics, and he interacts with the guests in a perfect balance. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Nick. I'm so happy that you are picking up what I'm putting down. And to all you guys out there who've taken time out of your busy lives to leave that rating and review for the show on iTunes, I really appreciate it. We're at almost 2,000 ratings on iTunes, which really helps. It helps the show rise up the ranks so that we can grow this baby. And, um, and yeah, so I appreciate you spreading the word about the show, pre-ordering my new book, The Genius Life, at geniuslifebook.com, being on my newsletter, following me on social media. It all helps and it's all gravy my friends so yeah i am uh, in new york this week i'm taping some promo for my new book the genius life uh, i'll be taping the dr oz show the rachel ray show i don't yet have air dates but when i have them i'll let you know on social media uh, but this saturday march 7th um, which is 10 days before my book comes out on march 17th this saturday march 7th i'm going to be on good morning america so if you live in the states and you tune in saturday morning to Good Morning America, you're going to see a familiar face. Um, so I hope you get to do that. Set your DV DVRs. And that's it for me, you guys. I'm excited to dive into this chat with Dr. Hyman. And without further ado, let's roll. Dr. Mark Hyman. How are you, Max? It's so great to finally have you on The Genius Life. No, I don't know if I deserve to be on The Genius Life. But uh, <laughs> I am so happy to be here talking to you about things because... Uh, I have such respect for you, and I love your genius books. I just got the latest one pre pre copy, and I'm just so excited to help you with it. Oh man! Well, thank you so much. That help is very, very much appreciated. Your team has been 
nothing but lovely to work with. And um, yeah, man, you are a, you're such an inspiration and I'm proud to call you a friend. And uh, we've hung out at academic conferences. We've hung out at Burning Man. We've hung out. I mean, in so many different contexts, and you're the, you're the same person. You're just always so conscientious and empathetic and open, and um, and you're always teaching. You're always learning, and you're always teaching, which I think is the true. the true mark of a you know that that's the mark of a true genius, in my opinion, or one of the marks. <laughs> well, you know, uh, when Oscar Wilde says, "Be yourself," everybody else is taken. So I don't know what else to do other than be me. <laughs> well, I love it. And uh, we all appreciate that. So tell me about your new book, Food Fix. This is kind of a departure for you because it's not a self-help book. Um, nonetheless, you're tackling a very important topic in it, and that is the food system. Yeah, it's not a self-help book. It's an us-help book because, you know, sitting in my office for 30 years, seeing patient after patient with chronic illness, you know, it was really evident to me, being a functional medicine doctor, that food is the cause of so much of what ails people today. And you know, I could sit in my office for the next 30 years seeing patients, and it wouldn't make a dent in the problem because people keep flooding the system of healthcare because of our food system. So I sort of began to sort of think upstream and go, well, wait a minute, I can't sit here in my office and really heal my patients. I have to deal with the food. And then I thought, well, if the food system is causing the problem, what's causing the food system? And then I was like, well, it's the food policies we have that's driving that. And then what's causing that? It's the food industry's influence on our government and policy and everything else that matters. And it's in a very coordinated strategic way, the food industry is undermining public health and crippling our economy, damaging the climate, destroying the minds of our future generations of kids who eat junk food and can't focus, think, or learn, and even challenging our national security because 70% of military recruits aren't even able to join because even if they want to because they're unfit or overweight. So I was like, wait a minute, this is a bigger problem than just food. It's it's everything that we care about, right? It's our economy, it's our children, our national security, our our you know, climate, our environment, all are connected by food. And I said, Well, you know, if that's the cause, then the good news is that food also can be the cure. So not only is it the problem, but it's also the solution, which is what's so awesome. So the book isn't called Food Apocalypse, it's actually called Food Fix. It's actually very hopeful because there's so much changing now in the food space that just is so striking that's resulting from individuals and people making different choices, demanding different things. So example, Burger King just came out with an ad of a Big Whopper going moldy over 34 days to the tune of what a difference a day makes. <laughs> and the end of the commercial, there's a big, you know, sort of little sort of tagline which says there are no artificial preservatives. And, you know, Burger King is not a health food, but still – uh, to, for them to act and do that is a huge thing. Kellogg said, no more glyphosate in our cereal. Whether they do it or not is another matter, but they announced that they're going to try to get glyphosate out of their cereal. And General Mills and Danone are committing to regenerative ag and paying farmers to convert their farms. You know, and Cheerios has more glyphosate or weed killer than vitamin D or vitamin B12, which are added to the cereal. <laughs> So, like, there's a lot of change happening, and I, I, I see politics changing. I see the Food is Medicine Working Group in Congress. I see senators and congressmen talking about these issues. I see states acting on this. I see businesses innovate. I see people changing their, their demands of what they're buying. So I, I feel like, although it's overwhelming, there's, there's real hope and there's real possibility. Yeah, I love that it's not all doom and gloom, that you that you provide viable solutions in the book. So, I mean, where do we even begin, Mark? It's so com <laughs> it's so complex. I mean, the food system is, I mean, you know, I think I'm a, a relatively smart guy at times. I mean, sometimes I feel like I don't know anything, but... You're a genius. <laughs> I, like, I get into these debates sometimes with people online that will just plainly argue that organic is no better for the environment than conventional. In fact, it can be, if you look at certain metrics, it could be worse. So at a certain point, I feel like average people just want to throw their hands up and say, oh, I, I don't even know what to eat anymore. I agree. It is a little overwhelming. And, I, and you know, I'm sort of joking with you before we got on the podcast that my book is number one in paleo and number one in vegan. And I feel like that's a big success because, <laughs> you know, we have to end these horrible conflicts and diet wars. The truth is that, that uh, all these different sort of health-related diets are all have more in common with each other than they do with the standard American diet which is 60% processed food. And I mean, 
that is driving 11 million deaths a year around the world. I think about it. That's like a Holocaust every year. Like World War II, Germans killed 12 million people in concentration camps, 6 million Jews. So 11 million, I think that's an underestimate, die every year from eating ultra-processed food, which are the basically the ingredients uh, of, of all the things that we have in our in our food supply that are white flour, high fructose corn syrup, and all the derivative corn products in our processed foods and and refined soybean oil that are the building blocks of processed food. And and people don't understand that they can make choices around that. You know, you don't have to eat perfectly organic. It doesn't have to be grass-fed perfectly, although, you know, ideally we should. And we, we can be aspiring to what we call a regenitarian diet. Uh, we can talk more about that in a minute. But um, people can just start to just vote out of, opt out of eating industrial food, right? You don't have to eat industrial food. There's plenty of vegetables, grains, beans, fruit, nuts, seeds, meats, uh, even if it's not grown in the most perfect way, it's a hell of a lot better than industrial processed food. And that's something everybody can do. And that is why, Max, the food companies are changing their formulation of their products. Why I go to the Hest, uh, Nestle headquarters in Cleveland and I don't take any money from them because uh, they want to know what I think. And I tell them what I think, which is that it's crap and they should get rid of a lot of what's going on in their food. And they actually are. They're removing a lot of the chemicals. So we, we actually on a personal level, have a huge impact. And, and I think people can start to eat just real food. And then if you want to sort of take it up a notch, uh, just opt out of GMO foods. So if it says non-GMO, you can eat it. Otherwise, don't eat it um, because it is sending a message to the food industry to stop doing this. That's why Campbell's decided to get GMO out of all their foods and why uh, a lot of other companies are opting out of GMO to actually change the marketplace. Uh, and you, you want to go even further, you can become a regenitarian and try to source foods from your local farmer's market, from community-supported agriculture, from uh, regenitarian, re, sorry, regenerative ranches that you can go online and find, like Mariposa Ranch, where you can get uh, grass-finished, regeneratively raised beef that restores the soil, protects the climate, reverses climate change, and, and does a whole bunch of other beneficial things to the environment. You can buy it for eight bucks a pound, which is $2 for a four ounce serving, which is probably less than a McDonald's hamburger, right? So, you know, it can it can be cost prohibitive sometimes, but if you do a little homework and search a little bit, you could do it, you could start a compost. Uh, why would you care about starting a compost? Well, uh, I was just going to food waste. Can I do that for a minute? Just talk about that? Yeah, please. Okay, okay, so, so why should we care about garbage, right? Well, it turns out food waste to our country would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Why? Well, if you're a vegetarian, you're a vegan, or you, you know, you mean throw your vegetables out and they go in the landfill, they, they, they rot. And that rotting releases methane. Methane is 25 times more potent a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So we throw out 40% of our food. Now, in the developed world, it's mostly stuff that we throw out in our kitchens or in restaurants or grocery stores or food service companies. In the developed world, it, it's a problem because the food chain of, of preserving the food is not great. By the time it gets in their home, they don't waste any of it. But somewhere along the line, a lot of it gets gets wasted. So that that is something that you can do something about by starting a compost uh, bucket in your kitchen. And if you live in an apartment, there's comp in, in apartment composters that don't smell, that turn into nice, rich soil. Uh, you can do it in your backyard. I've had one for 40 years. You can decide you want to give it to the farmer's market. There's one in Union Square here where I live in New York. And you can drop off the uh, compost at the farmer's market. Uh, so there's a lot of ways to do this. You can even, you know, become active with your local community and, and your politics and say, hey, you know, let's get an ordinance for composting. So there's a lot of things you can do that are are, are becoming agents of change. And maybe you want to change the school lunches in your kid's school. You can do that. And I talk about that in the book. So there's so many things that you can do simply by by changing your own habits. But it's going to create it's going to require collective action to create a food fix revolution. And, uh, and, and all of us can be part of that. Yeah, I was watching a documentary that I think people should check out. It was called Wasted, and I it talked a lot about the food waste problem. And it uh, there was this statistic that was on a title card that just was shocking to me because you know a lot of people will say that eating healthy, you know, sticking to whole foods and and avoiding these ultra processed foods, fast foods, it's more expensive. But actually, your average household wastes about fifteen hundred dollars worth of food every single year. That's right. It's about a pound per person a day of food. And if we shop more smartly, if we 
use things like fresh paper, which is something you can just buy. It's an herbal infused paper that you can put in your vegetable drawer that keeps your vegetables fresh longer. Um, whether you make soups and stews out of vegetables, pay more attention to the amount you're buying. Uh, we can we can all make a difference in this, and I think that's it's so it's so critical. But you know we shouldn't feel like it's all on our shoulders to do these things. And and on my website for the book, foodfixbook.com, you can download the free uh, food fix action guide, which gives you the 20 things you can do as citizens, 20 top policy fixes, what are the top fixes for schools and, and universities, the business fixes, and agricultural fixes. So how do we start to shift the, the things in the right direction? Yeah, I love that. So how does eating processed foods contribute to environmental problems? Oh, great question. So um, I was on CBS this morning, this morning, and uh, is that redundant? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And there's a guy who was sitting in the green room with me who was a CBS reporter who went down to the Amazon, was talking about deforestation and talking about the massive amounts of of, uh, rainforest being cut down in Brazil to grow soy for animal feed and to, to create space to raise cattle. And uh, he said, you know, they were, they were at one point 24 kilometers of nose to tail, 18 wheelers, tractor trailers, full of, of some food and stuff, hollowing out the rainforest. Um, that's just one example. But when we grow industrial food, it's done in a way uh, that destroys the soil. Uh, so when you till and you use chemicals, fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, it kills the microbiology of the soil. It's like killing your microbiome. It's like taking antibiotics right in your gut. And when you do that, the soil um, releases the carbon that's stored in there into the atmosphere. Now, most of us don't realize that the, that the prairies basically are the rainforest um, and, that, uh, and that we need to actually think of the soil as the biggest carbon sink on the planet. It can hold three times the amount of carbon in the atmosphere today. Of the one trillion tons, it can hold three times that amount. And and most people don't realize that, and I didn't certainly, was that 30 to 40% of all the carbon in the atmosphere now, which is a trillion tons, three to 400 tons of that has come from the soil, from the way we're farming with the tillage and the chemicals and the erosion and the leaving bare land and not using cover crops and not using crop rotations to feed the soil and not integrating animals into it. How we got 50 to 80 feet of topsoil in America was from bison and the ruminants running around in mobs, grazing, moving on, peeing, pooing, and using their saliva to make the grass grow. And they would they would just create this incredible rich soil. And, and so we, we literally have a system where every aspect of our farming system from deforestation to the factory farm animals, to the soil damage, to the use of nitrogen fertilizers, which release nitrous oxide in the soil, which leads to is 300 times more potent greenhouse gas than, than carbon dioxide, the food waste and the methane. So in every aspect of our food system, 50% of it of climate change is caused by the food system. And that is a great thing because that is so fixable. And, and the UN recently said that if we took two of the five million degraded hectares of land, and, and they're degraded because of overgrazing, the farming, soil erosion. So there's five million hectares of degraded land. If we took that amount, two million, and converted to a regenerative bag, which would cost $300 billion, which is less than we spend every year on Medicare for diabetes alone, okay? Oh. Uh, we, could, we could literally stop climate change for 20 years. Wow. Which is a powerful thing to think about. And that's why we're seeing so much more interest in regenerative ag. And I was part of a movie called Kiss the Ground. And why is a doctor thinking about agriculture? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, when I was in college, I read a book called The Soil and Health by Sir Albert Howard, who was the father of organic agriculture. And, and he had a line in there that was very powerful. It says, the, the whole problem of health in soil, plant, animal, and human is one great subject. And that stuck with me my whole life. And, and it really is something I'm coming back to now because if I want to help my patients in my office, I have to start with the soil. I have to start with the seeds. I have to start with how we're farming, the quality of the food we're producing, and everything that comes downstream from that. So the beauty of this is that it's a fixable thing. It's a winnable win. And everybody you know, can actually benefit. And the farmers make more money. The economics of it are amazing. You know, uh, When you look at a regenerative farm, you know, 
the the uh, average farmer on a regular farm loses about sixteen hundred dollars a year in America, which is terrifying. Mm. Um, and many of them are going bankrupt. There's farmer suicides are on the rise. I mean, it's it's really terrible. Uh, with regenerative farming, they make so much more money. There's a guy named Gabe Brown I talk about in the book who I called and had a chat with, and it was just fascinating. He said, "Look, you know, my farm was being decimated by hail and bad weather, and like many farmers today." He said, I decided to choose regenerative ag, and, and he built 29 inches of soil. He doesn't use irrigation because the water, the soil holds so much water when it's full of organic matter, which essentially can hold 27,000 gallons per acre. It, it produces better quality food because, by the way, to get nutrients out of your food, you know, you, you know, you actually talk a lot about the nutrition in food and the nutrient density and the vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals. Well, that comes from the soil extracting uh, that through, for the plants through the use of the organic matter and the microbial life in the soil. So if you have dirt, which is no life, the plants are less nutritious. Even if you're eating broccoli, it's 50% less nutritious than it was 50 years ago when I was 10 years old. <laughs> so that's pretty terrifying. And so when you have a regenerative farm, you produce more nutritious food, you build soil, you conserve water, you increase pollinator species, biodiversity, all the ecosystem benefits, and the farmer, Gabe said, he makes 20 times the amount of money as his neighbor, and his farm is drought and hail resistant and flood resistant because of, of the way he farms. So that's a win-win all the way around. Yeah. I mean, a topic that you cover in the book that I think definitely deserves um, you know, uh, an investigation is the, is the value of organic versus con- the conventional farming practices. And this is not actually as black and white as I think people might um, expect it to be, but I mean, in your investigation, in your writing, what have you sort of uncovered? Is it is the is the solution then for people to be buying everything organic, or is it not as big of a yeah. deal? Or like, what is your what's your take? Yeah, well, that's a great question. So, you know, organic is is a big topic because um, you know there there are, as Michael Pollan wrote about in his book or Omnivore's Dilemma, there's something called industrial organic. So you can grow food in an industrial way, even if it's organic. Now, it may be a little bit better. It might not have as much uh, you know, pesticides and chemicals and so forth. Uh, but, but it can still be done with tillage of the soil, with heavy irrigation. And uh, often they're using, for example, fertilizers that are from bone meal and other sources that are from factory farm animals. Uh, so who knows what you're getting in there. So um, there's a whole new sort of category called regenerative agriculture, regenerative organic. And, uh, you know, Rodale Institute and Patagonia are working on this regenic, regenerative organic certification, which is really pretty, pretty important. So I think it, it, we need to sort of step it up a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, most organic produce is not regenerative. Um, the input's very intensive. They don't use synthetic fertilizers or pesticides, but it uses manure, which may and also maybe use other organic pesticides. So I think it's really, um, you know, it's not so simple and the tillage and the lack of cover crops. So if it's, if it's regenerative organic, it does, it solves all those problems. So it's, it's not necessarily the, the highest level of agriculture we could be doing. Um, so people should say, yes, it's better. And yes, you're not getting GMO and yes, you're not using pesticides and yes, you're not using the traditional fertilizers, but it, but it's not, it's not perfect. And I think, um, that's not to depress everybody, but it's just to point out that, you know, we have more to learn and we have different ways of growing food that actually are better that, that take organic to the next level. And, and again, you don't have to be perfect. Just do what you can. It's just aspirational. You don't have to actually completely, you know, eat organic if you can't. Just start with whole foods. Just start with boycotting industrial food. Just start there. That's going to make a huge difference for your health. Yeah, I think a lot of people um, that I encounter on social media, you know, they – they feel um, inadequate if they're unable to purchase organic food. And I yeah, think that no. it's so important to not feel that way. No, I agree. I agree. It's just a hierarchy, right? So, you know, you, we have to do what we can do and what, what our best is. And, and the truth is that it, just moving from a processed diet to an unprocessed diet is good. It's great. And it'll work. It'll help you feel better. It'll improve your health. You don't have to be uh, uh, completely perfect. So I really... I really encourage people to to just think about how to do that in a way that works for them. You know, I worked with a family of four in North 
five actually in North Carolina, South Carolina, a number of years ago as part of FEP. And you know, they lived in food stamps and disability. There was a family of five. They lived in a trailer. The father had diabetes. He was 42 years old, had kidney failure, was on dialysis and couldn't lose weight. What you needed to do to get a kidney transplant. Every, everybody in the family was crying because he was going to die if they couldn't get this. And, and I'm like, why do you want to change your diet? And they were just wanting to change it because of their their dad and then the husband. And you know, and they were trying. And I went into their home and I saw what they were eating, and it was just all packaged, processed industrial food. And if you covered over the front of the box, you couldn't actually tell what it was. It was a pop tart or a corn dog, you know, basically. <laughs> and so I showed them what was in the food, and it was like, wow, they were just so surprised like that cool whip wasn't a health food that they thought it was because it had zero trans fats on the label but it's all trans fat it's just a loophole that the fda gave the food industry to allow it to say zero trans fat if it has less than half a gram per serving and so they they, then we cooked a meal together a real simple food you know salad with actual lettuce not iceberg lettuce and olive oil vinegar dressing and and we roasted sweet potatoes and we stir fried some asparagus and we we made turkey chili And, and um you know, they, they loved it, and they were so surprised, and the kids loved it, who just never would eat anything. And, and I gave them this guide called Good Food on a Tight Budget, which is from the Environmental Working Group, where I'm on the board. And it's how to eat well for you, well for the planet, and well for your wallet. And and it's, you know, not the, the fanciest cut of meat or the fanciest vegetables or whatever, but it's just it's just real good whole food. And you can eat really well for, for not that much. Grains and beans are not that expensive. You know, some vegetables are much cheaper than others. So I think we, we all can, can figure it out. And then they went on to do this themselves in the worst food desert in America. And they lost 200 pounds uh, together in a year. The, the, the son went back to work in a fast food place, Bojangles, which I don't think I've ever been in. And, <laughs> and, and he gained 50 pounds. He goes like, Mark, that's like putting an alcoholic to work in a bar. Uh, and then, and then he went on to figure it out and he, he lost, um, he lost weight and, uh, he lost 138 pounds, um, and now is in medical school. <laughs> wow. That's a Which powerful point. So he basically just swap, just going from switching from a, a, a diet dominated primarily by ultra processed foods to more, a more whole foods based diet. He lost weight. And there, he wasn't making, uh, you know, stipulations about grass-fed this or organic that. It no. was just, it was just going to a whole foods diet. Exactly. So it's just a hierarchy. And I think, you know, yes, if if we all boycotted industrial food, that would change the food system. It would change our health. And and as long as we're eating, you know, real food, that's just the first step. And it can be done in a way that it meets your budget. And, and, and the studies have shown that eating whole foods may be up to 50%, sorry, 50 cents more a day. Now, for some people, that's a lot. But, you know, 50 cents over a month is $15 a month more to eat whole foods. And and I think that's worth it. You know, what what do we invest $15 in? How many, you know, things do we buy online or how many coffees do we buy or whatever you know it's just we you know you just track your spending and see what you actually spend money on and then you know wouldn't it be good to invest a little bit in your health <laughs> yeah i mean at risk of sounding um maybe a little bit privileged you know I, th- I think it's always worth considering the fact that disease is among the most expensive things that there is in life to be you know to to have to lean on the healthcare system um you know, and so to make that investment up front, you got to pay the tab at some point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, Janice, who I talked about in the book, was uh, a great example because you don't think, oh, well, it's about prevention and just eating healthy so you don't get sick. But, you know, you and I write about this food is medicine and actually can cure really advanced disease. Uh, and Janice had heart failure, she had diabetes, she was severely overweight, she had kidney failure, she had liver failure. I mean, she wasn't on dialysis yet, but she was heading there. She was heading for a heart transplant. And she was, you know, so sick on so many medications. And within three days of changing her diet to a whole foods diet, and she was eating heavily processed foods most of the time. Her, her omega-6 to, to 3 ratio was 20 to 1. Wow. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know what that means, it's like normally, historically, when we were hunter-gatherers, we all lived on the coast and, you know, ate wild food. And our ratio was 1 to 1 or 2 to 1. 21 is bad and more inflammatory. Anyway, she changed her diet. In three days, she got off insulin. In three months, she lost uh, 43 pounds and reversed her diabetes, her heart failure. Her kidneys got better. Her blood pressure got better. And at the end of the year, she lost 116 pounds and got off $20,000 worth of medications. That was her copay every year. Not not what the insurance company paid, but what copay was paid. 
That's staggering. <clears throat> yeah, sick care is expensive. Sick yeah. care is very, very expensive. And and if you're overweight, losing weight is going to give you. I mean, via whichever means um, necessary, is going to be is going to give you the most bang for your buck, right? I mean, so many of these conditions, whether it's heart disease, cancer, I mean, they're all strongly correlated with um, our ever growing waistlines. Am I am I correct? Absolutely, but it's obesity is just a symptom, right? It's just a symptom of the food that we're eating. It's a symptom that then um, you know leads to these other problems because it's driving mostly insulin resistance, which is this sort of pre-diabetic state that actually drives so much of our our, our um, crises, right? Heart disease, cancer, diabetes, dementia, all are driven by this mechanism that you know we actually can easily fixed with our diet, which is what's so amazing. That's what Janice said. And she had been so far gone, right? She was so far gone, but uh, she was able to come back from the brink because food is that powerful. Yeah. I love that your book is number one in the, on the vegan list on, on Amazon. Cause one of the questions that I always get asked on social media is, you know, how does meat fit within the diet of somebody who is a conscientious being and cares about the environment and the suffering of other sentient beings and things like that. What are your thoughts on meat? Well, I think, you know, it's a multifaceted question, right? There's the health consequences, there's the environmental consequences, and then there's the moral question about it. And I'll just sort of tackle each of those. So in terms of the moral question, I mean, I have, I have um, you know, patients who are Buddhist monks and I don't tell them they eat meat. Although the Dalai Lama, I know, eats meat. <laughs> but but anyway, uh, I think you know if it's a if it's a strong moral choice, I respect that. Um, and uh, but it's also important to understand that we we can't get out of killing things just just by the nature of agriculture. Uh, it's very destructive. You're you're basically destroying the habitat of tons of wild animals by plowing up fields. So you're killing birds and insects and moles and gophers and rabbits and mice and and literally, I was shocked when I read this, but every year from plant agriculture, you kill 7 billion animals a year. From plant <laughs> agriculture? Yes. Wow. I mean, just as, a, as, a, as an inadvertent side effect of destroying their habitat and digging. I mean, when those combines go through and there's animals on the ground, I mean, it, they are not happy. Uh, you know, we kill, in, in comparison, 29 million cows a year in America compared to 7 billion other animals now is a mouse or a rabbit or a gopher less valuable than a cow? I don't know in terms of its life. I don't think so. But it's important for people to realize that. I don't think people really understand that. So that's that's you can't get out of that. Second is, um, you know, the 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 environmental consequences, and clearly, factory farming of animals is one of the most destructive forces on the planet. Um, for a number of reasons. One, because of how we grow the food for those that contributes to climate change, the soy and the corn for the cows and the pigs and the chickens and the, all the things we eat. Um, and of course, the, the methane emissions and the manure lagoons and the off-gassing, it's, it's about 14 to 50% of all greenhouse gases comes from factory farming of animals. And 70% and of our agricultural land is used to grow food for animals, not humans. Uh, which is kind of disturbing. Uh, and I think they should be banned. So factory farming of animals, no argument, ban it. Bad for humans, bad for the animals, bad for the planet. End of story. Um, but turns out that um, from an environmental point of view, regenerative agriculture requires animals. And in order to build soil, you need their pee and their poo and they're digging around and they're chewing the grass down. And the truth is that 40% of our farmland, of our agricultural land, cannot grow grains or beans or vegetables. It can only have livestock. Hmm. And they upcycle the nutrients that we could never eat to make food for humans. And if you have a regenerative cow, it's not using water. I mean, apparently, you know, regular cows is about 1,800 gallons a pound of water, but that's because of the farming and all the other things that are using irrigation. Most of the water that is in regenerative farming is green water, meaning it's rainwater, which, you know, doesn't, doesn't cause any problems. Right. And then you restore, with the regenerative farm, you restore the soil. So you're actually drawing down carbon from the atmosphere, not contributing to climate change. And you're also increasing biodiversity. So you're bringing back wildlife and pollinators and butterflies and bees. And so you create a really robust ecosystem that actually helps reverse climate change. 
conserve water, increase biodiversity. And an example of this is um, is the comparison of a regeneratively raised beef burger to a plant-based burger, like an Impossible Burger. And a company called Qantas did a life cycle analysis I talk about in the book, Food Fix. And what they found was really striking. They found that, you know, yes, an Impossible Burger is much, much better than a factory farm burger. But when you look at, at the whole ecosystem effects, uh, a GMO soy burger, which is what Impossible Foods Burger is, not only has glyphosate and is a lot of weird processed ingredients, but it adds three and a half kilos of carbon to the environment. When you actually look at a regeneratively raised burger, including all the methane, everything, everything, it removes three and a half kilos of carbon. So you literally have to eat one regeneratively raised beef burger to offset the carbon emissions of a impossible burger. Wow. <laughs> you know, think about that. So I think this is a nuanced conversation. It's not black and white. It's not, you know, vegan, not vegan. It's not, you know, cow, no cow. It's as, as Russ Conzer said, who's a farmer said, it's not the cow, it's the how. <laughs> I love that. You know, and, and then the last question, and that's part of the question is the health. And I think, you know, every week there's a different study that says meat is fine. Meat's killing you. Meat's fine. Meat's killing you. <laughs> and it's like, I looked at the latest one from JAMA, which came out a few days ago, and it was like, okay, well, it's it's causing harm. And I looked at the study, and it's like 30,000 people, they gave them food questionnaires, which aren't that reliable. Um, it can be confounded because people who eat meat typically don't care as much about their health. So they weigh more, they smoke more, they drink more, they don't exercise, they don't eat fruits and vegetables. Of course, they have more disease, but that's an aside. But the effect size was so small, like it was 0.03 increased risk. So just to put that in perspective, smoking in these large population studies showed a 20 to 1 risk. Hmm. This is showing a 0.3 to 1 risk. <laughs> <laughs> it's tiny. It's like... Yeah, it's just so little. I mean, it's like it's like uh, you know, say instead of two thousand percent, it's like a three percent increase in risk, right? Yeah. Which is not really that significant when you look at these kinds of studies because they only really are relevant when you have a big effect size, right? If it's a two to one or a three to one, not a point three to one, right? Yeah. So I I think that's the issue. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think it's like the effect sizes are so small and then just the the endless sea of confounding variables that you get when you, you know, look at the um the epidemiology of meat consumption. It's just uh yeah, it's just like the, the way the nutrition science is set up, it's very poorly suited to study these individual foods, you know, across across wide uh, you know, across the population, what you need is a randomized control <laughs> trial, and we don't have any of those to show that meat is unhealthy. In no. fact, what we have are trials that show that meat can actually be extremely healthy. Yeah, they are. The, the clinical trials are showing benefit if you clean up people's diet. And one of the one of the great studies that I love to quote is something I read years ago, which compared people who ate at health food who shopped at health food stores who were either meat eaters or they were vegetarians or vegans. And there was absolutely no difference. They both had their health risks reduced and their mortality reduced in half. So the reason is it's not the meat. It's what you eat with the meat, right? If you have a four-ounce piece of regeneratively raised steak along with a mountain of plant foods and vegetables, which should be 80 to 90% of your plate, is that bad? For sure not, right? If you're eating it with you know, a big bun and fries and Coke and a milkshake, yeah, that's bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of people who are, um, you know, they're armchair environmentalists and then they'll come out and they'll, you know, they'll uh, rage against meat consumption and things like that. But then you have to wonder if they're consuming things like almond milk. Did you look into uh, the production um you know, of any of these kinds of foods like almonds, avocados, other other individual foods to see, you know, yeah. whether or not they are harmful or beneficial from the from an environmental standpoint? Yeah, I mean, you know, th listen, there's environmental impact on everything, but a regenerative farm actually can mitigate all of that and prevent all of that. And I, I think that's what we should move into through all agriculture. For example, you know, with with almond trees, for example, you know, we should be doing silvopasture. What is that? That's when you in integrate animals into the orchards. So they do it, for example, with the black-footed pigs in Spain uh, that produce a very different quality meat than 
traditional pigs because they're eating acorns from the oak trees and they live in the oak trees. Chickens uh, are, are talked about in the book are raised in hazelnut orchards where they eat the hazelnuts and they pee and they poo and they fertilize everything. And that means you need less water because almonds require huge amounts of water, right? And, and so, you know, you can mitigate a lot of the problems by taking all agriculture and shifting it that way. So, yeah, what, you know, I think there are challenges with certain foods like avocados. You know, we talked about in the book, but, you know, they're run by Mexican cartels. So all the all avocados are taken from Mexico, you know, are really um, blood avocados in many ways. And these, these farmers and others are being squeezed by the cartels. Uh, you know, we, we think we're doing a great job eating quinoa. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's actually uh, causing a huge problem in the, in, the, in the South America because this is their native diet. And now it's so premium, they sell it abroad and they're eating rice and they're eating flour and they're eating all the stuff that they never ate. And they're all becoming obese. So I think, you know, we've got to be sort of aware of the implications of what we're eating and where it's, where it's grown. Yeah. So quinoa, I mean, it's, if it's not grown in the U.S., so does that mean that none of us should be eating quinoa? Good question. I don't. I don't know. Like I think it, 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 we should look at where it comes from and what effect it's having. And I, I do worry about it. I mean, I eat it. You know, am I a hypocrite? Probably. Like we all can't get out of this world alive without being a little hypocritical, just by the <laughs> nature of of the way things are. I mean, you and I go out to eat. We don't know where everything is coming from. We don't know where it's sourced. We don't know like if our guacamole came from some poor Mexican farmer that was you know abused in childhood labor. I mean, like we just don't know. Right. Right. But but we can try to be smarter about it and and you know try to uh, you know choose things that are 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 grown in ways that are more humane for humans, animals, and farmers. And there's a great program. It's called the Fair Food Program, which I talk about in the book. Hmm. Uh, because farmers are, 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 you know, you know, coming together, and, and there's there's a huge amount of tomatoes grown. Like I think 80% of tomatoes grown in America are in Florida, and a lot of those go to fast food restaurants like McDonald's, you know, for the burgers and all that. And and the the Mockley workers down there were so poor. I mean, they were getting basically a penny a bushel, uh, and and they lived on you know almost nothing, and they they couldn't have basically afford housing. Some of them were just camping out in the fields. Uh, they, they couldn't get health care. They, I mean, they just was, they worked, you know, from five in the morning till eight at night. It was just terrible. There were terrible conditions with, you know, beatings and not getting out, not being able to go to the bathroom and being in the hot sun and not having hydration and women being sexually molested. I mean, it just was terrible. And, and so they got together a bunch of Haitian, I think South American, Mexican farm workers, and they created this coalition called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. And they, they boycotted. Uh, first, they tried to get the farmers to change, and they wouldn't change. Then they got Taco Bell um, uh, to to sort of embarrass them by having a campaign called "Boycott the Bell," where they outed them for you know the the, the worker conditions that was um, related to the food that they were serving there. And they got them to change, and they created a fair food program. And, and basically, all the big food companies have now joined on all the fast food companies, except except for Wendy's. And except for Publix grocery store, but Walmart and McDonald's and Burger King are all part of the fair food program that food is raised and grown in ways that are humane for the workers. They have workers' rights. They can you know, offer clean water and bathroom breaks and you know, just basic human rights stuff mm-hmm. and a penny per pound more. I'm sorry, a penny per bushel more, which doubles their salary literally doubles their salary and it, and they're not passing these costs on to consumers. So I see, you know, there's a lot of things happening. There's a good food purchasing program out in California that's basically helps governments and businesses to buy food in ways that are sourced well from humane conditions for animals, humane for the workers. It's clean food. It promotes health. I mean, it's really, there's so much happening that's good in this space in that way. So what can consumers then look for on the labels when they're in their local supermarkets? I mean, do we, do we yet have a regenerative Farming system not yet. label? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet, but we're working on it. Uh, there's a whole uh, effort in, in Washington to get this regenerative organic certification passed. And I talk a little bit about it in the book and where you can be more about it. And, and you can go online to help sort of encourage your congressman to get that going. So, so it's going to happen uh, for sure because Congress is getting aware of these issues. And I think we're, we're in an incredible moment of change and possibility. So right now you can't. You can buy non-GMO foods. That's a great place to start. You can shift to more organic. You can, like I said, 
look for various labels. I talk about this in the book. I have a whole action guide, and you can go to foodfixbook.com and get the action guide, which is free, and it, and it essentially goes through all the things you can do and how to source your food and what the label should look like and what it should say, and, and, it, and it was really great, very practical tips on how to do that. Uh, and, and I encourage people to sort of take control of their eating and, and look for food labels. Like, for example, um, you know, American Grass-Fed or American Humane Certified or American Welfare Review Certified or Global Animal Partnership. And there's all these things that I talk about in the book, even sustainable seafood groups and biodynamic farming. So there's all kinds of labels that are great, and there's great resources online to find this stuff. And now you can get a lot of stuff online. You can buy at Thrive Market, Regenerative Food. And, you know, I've invested in that company because I believe in it so much, and I think they've done such great work to make really whole, healthy foods available to everyone at a very steep discount of like 25 to 50% off the uh, traditional retail price. So I, I think, um, you know, I, I'm hopeful. I see these, these coming, these changes coming, and now sort of mainstream soon. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, grass-fed beef, the, cer- the certified humane, as you mentioned. Um, what about, so when it comes to regulation, I know one of the topics that you talk about in the book is this, like, uh, the notion of like a soda tax or a junk food tax. What are your thoughts on that? Because that's sort of a contentious topic, right? Oh, for sure. <laughs> Especially the food industry. Uh, and I think, you know, there, there's, you know, fiscal leaders like Larry Summers, who was the uh, former Treasury Secretary and Obama's chief economic advisor, and uh, Michael Bloomberg, have created a task force for fiscal policies that can help to drive change in the marketplace. And, you know, we do know that, that soda taxes and food taxes work. Uh, we have many examples around the world where, where they actually are effective. And I think, um, and it's a lever, it's one lever that can be used. And we say, well, what about nanny states, this and that? Well, you know, we do a lot of things. We tax cigarettes, we tax gasoline, we tax, uh, you know, we, we, we have uh, seatbelt laws, we have baby seat laws in cars, we mandate vaccines, which, you know, you can argue good or bad. But, you know, we have a lot of things that are there to protect the public. And I think what's really exciting about uh, soda taxes, they actually work, that they actually incentivize people to buy more water. Uh, they, they also cause, um, you know, ripple effects by the tax revenue being available for the the community benefits that can that can accrue from it. So in Philadelphia, they had a soda tax, and they were able to get uh, all the money to uh, go for community services, for community centers, schools, just really things that people want. And and when you do that, it, it's it's not so much seen as a penalty that the, the, actually the the consumer really um, uh, you know really seems to to sort of like it. And this was how they actually got it passed in Philadelphia, which was great. Um, I mean, if you look at, at just a one cent a tax, one cent tax per ounce uh, or a penny per ounce, which is you know based on the sugar concentration, should be right. Uh, the revenue just if, if 15 cities um, joined the six that adopted soda taxes in 2016, it would be about a billion dollars in revenue that could be used for social benefit, obesity programs. We'd have 60,000 fewer cases of obesity. We would have about 6% drop in the diabetes rate, and we'd save $1.2 billion in healthcare dollars. So the, the data is really clear on this, but it's not so palatable to everybody. I think a bigger factor, what's more interesting to me, is um, what some countries are doing, which is eliminating food marketing to kids. And many countries have done this. We have the First Amendment in America, which makes it difficult <laughs> to impede free speech. Uh, and I don't know if we should consider targeted marketing to kids where they put kids in MRI scanners to look at their brains and how they're stimulated by different images of food, junk food. Wow. We should say that's the First Amendment. I don't think that's the First Amendment. Right. They do they, that? Oh, they do that. Yeah, they take two-year-olds and they stick them in scanners and they like give them images and they see what actually uh, lights up their brain. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty bad. So, um, you know, uh, and in countries like Chile, they've eliminated any marketing of uh, junk food to kids. They put uh, warning labels on the front of boxes. They've taken out all the cartoon characters. So no more Tony the Tiger. And uh, what's really striking, and they've had an 80% soda tax and a bunch of other stuff, <clears throat> but what's really quite interesting is that by removing the um, the ads in, in all radio, TV, movie theaters, and all that, uh, they actually have seen a fourfold increased benefit over the taxes. So the taxes are effective, but the 
restriction of the marketing is way more effective. And I, I think that is a lesson to learn. I, I think we're not going to learn it here probably because of the food industry, but other countries are really focused on this. But, you know, the food industry's put 5.4 billion ads on Facebook for junk food targeted at kids last year. <laughs> 5.4 billion ads. They spent $17 billion in 2004 marketing junk food to kids. Um, it's staggering. That was compared to $100 million in 1983. So the growth of targeted marketing, and now it's even worse with stealth marketing, micro-targeting, online stuff. You can't even protect your kids because they won't watch TV or I'm going to let you watch Netflix where there's no commercials. It's the online stealth marketing that's really the issue now and the advert games that are embedded games within social media that are, quote, free, but that are full of junk food uh, product placements like Oreo cookies and McDonald's. So it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah, there's a growing community on social media. I'm not sure how privy you are to it, but I call them junk food apologists. Um, what are really? your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, what are you, like, there's, there, there are people that argue that, you know, to use the term junk food, there's no such thing as a, as a junk food, really. You can't call food, there's no such thing as a healthy or unhealthy food because every food, whether or not it's healthy or unhealthy, de depends ultimately on the, on the larger context in which it's consumed. But that well, I, I, I agree. There is no such thing as junk food. It's, there's junk and there's food. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, we, we shouldn't fool ourselves that things that are um, made to look like food are actually food. And, and yes, there, there are calories in them and there's all that. But the truth is these are, these are highly industrialized science projects that are different colors, sizes, and shapes of extruded food-like substances that are made from a few, very few raw materials, basically soy, corn, and wheat, uh, that are extremely harmful. That, that um, uh, The data is so clear on this. This is not my opinion. This is not some you know, crazy theory I have. I mean, this is major medical journals, large studies of 195 countries showing that processed food kills 11 million people a year. Now you can say, well, processed food is all food is processed. You know, we make you make a you know pancake at home from almond flour and coconut flour and whatever. That's processed. Yeah, it is. But you know, it's very different than having a food substance that has 400 ingredients, most of which you can't pronounce or recognize. Many of which are banned in other countries because they're so harmful to humans, and think that's okay. Like I just I, I don't I don't buy that argument for a minute. So I was joking. There's no such thing as junk food. There's just junk and there's food, and I, I would stick with that. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's a good time to remind people that uh, play doh has calories and it's and it's famously non toxic. So oh, there you go. Yeah, if we can't have clear definitions for what food is and what junk is, then you might as well call play doh food, right? Yeah, I love your little uh, Instagram post about nature's protein versus a protein bar with one ingredient versus thirty one ingredients. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not like I don't think it's what we're we're not trying to fear monger. You know, I mean, like certainly if you were to break apart a blueberry and look at all of its constituent chemicals, like there's a lot of chemicals that make a blueberry a blueberry, it's and you true. wouldn't be able it's to true. you wouldn't be able to pronounce you know the vast majority of them. But I think that's fair. But I think that we still need to empower the consumer to look at nutrition labels to know. I mean. I don't have a statistic here. You might. But I mean, I'm sure, you know, in this country, there is a significant proportion of adults that don't know how to read nutrition labels and don't know that when they look at the ingredients list of a food product that they are sorted in, you know, order of most uh, concentrated to least concentrated. So, well, it's worse than that. I mean, first of all, you have to have a Ph.D. in nutrition and then good luck to read the labels. And I've been studying this for 40 years. I still find them confusing, right? They're designed to be confusing. It says, you know, 39 grams of sugar. It doesn't say 10 teaspoons of sugar, right? Yeah. And, and so even if you kind of read that, and then you look at the ingredient list, and they, they're really smart, right? So the ingredients have to be listed in order of the percent of the ingredients, right? But in order to avoid listing sugar as the number one ingredient, they put in five different kinds of sugar, <laughs> right? So then it's now listed as the number one ingredient. And, and I, I learned this from the former um, head of the food programs and uh, the Obama administration in the, in the uh, USDA and the uh, HHS. And he was like, yeah, that's what they do. It's really terrible. And we can't, you know, we can't get any laws to change that. Yeah. So what is a what is a, if I were to come over to your house um, and look in, into your refrigerator, uh, what would I find there right now? 
at this moment? Well, right now I'm in New York City, so there, <laughs> and I and the kitchen is like a little tiny strip. <laughs> so um, what what my wife and I've done is we have friends uh, Danielle and Whitney who have this great uh, company called Sakara Life, and and they have all this great plant based delicious um, food that is just like salads and all kinds of yummy stuff. It's mostly gluten dairy free, so I got a bunch of that in the fridge. But uh, <laughs> but at home normally I will have. You know, I'll I'll get butcher box grass fed meats, um, so I know where I'm getting my stuff from. Uh, I'll usually have tons of veggies, so I'm like I have like two vegetable drawers, maybe three fully, because uh, I have a two sided fridge full up with vegetables, 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 and uh, and then uh, I typically have uh, you know pasture raised eggs. Uh, I I tend to you know have some whole grains. I don't eat a lot. I might have black rice, uh, quinoa sometimes. Sweet potatoes, I'm big into winter squash. I'm big into lots of nuts and seeds, and lots of uh, condiments. Spice. I have a giant spice drawer. I have olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, avocado oil is the main oils I use. Sometimes I'll use ghee or coconut oil, but uh, and I just uh, use you know tons of flavorings and spices. And it's just I have like I really literally. My wife's like, I don't know how you do it. You can come home from being away for three weeks from the house, and you can find stuff to make and create incredible dinner. You know, in five minutes. So I think I'm kind of good at that. But it's a skill like any other skill that people can learn how to cook. And and I think that's what's so striking to me. It's it's not that hard like that family I told you about. They never cooked a meal in their life. And by showing them to cook one meal, it's pretty easy, right? It's like riding a bike. You get on, you ride the bike. It takes a minute to learn, but then it's pretty easy. And I think that's just what most of us need to get get real with and actually enjoy it. Like when I have friends over for dinner, I'm like, I don't make the whole thing before they come. Like, come on over dinner. Come to the kitchen. Peel a carrot. Chop the onion. Stir fry this. Do this. Do that. And we all have fun. We put on music. We laugh. We talk. We cook. And we all share a great meal together. And it's super awesome. It's so fun. Yeah. Man, we've we've covered a lot of ground. I love, you know, we've we've closed the book on, you know, whether or not meat isn't imp- implicitly harmful to the environment. Uh, obviously, it's a complex issue, but uh, if you know where your meat's coming from, meat is totally it can be totally great for the environment and great for your health. Um, avoid packaged processed foods. Don't waste food. Um, I love that you brought up that you uh, that you coined this regenitarian diet. Is that <laughs> yeah? That was that was brilliant. I was like, well, it was just such, I mean, I coined pegan, which was sort of a spoof on paleo and vegan. But um, I also sort of thought, well, what, what, what can we all aspire to that is not in this dichotomous realm of this, that, right? Regenitarian is an, as an aspirational way of thinking about your diet that's going to help regenerate your health that regenerates the land, that protects the animals, that has, you know, massive benefits on climate and the environment. So if we can all aspire to do that and make little choices that inch towards that, fantastic, you know? And I think the more and more people are going to become aware of this because there's more and more movies and documentaries about this. There's more books written about it. There's more people talking about it. Uh, The government's talking about it. The food industry talking about it. And I think, you know, it's going to, in five years from now, um, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be pretty, pretty widespread, and I, I'm super excited to actually, you know, see that happen. I love it. Well, we're almost out of time. I got one last question for you, but before we get to that, how can uh, my listeners connect with you over social media, and where can they find uh, your new book, Food Fix? Well, they can find it anywhere you get books: uh, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, your bookstore, local bookstore. Use your local bookstore. They they need the help and the love, uh, and. You can learn more about my uh, book, uh, foodfixbook.com. There's a great video on there on you know, how to, you know, uh, five steps to a healthy plan and a healthy you. There's the, the uh, Food Fix Action Guide, which details all those things you can do that sort of in, in addition to things that are in the book. And uh, you can always go to drhyman.com and see my stuff. I've got the Doctor's Pharmacy podcast or where you get your podcasts. And on social media, I'm Dr. Just Dr. Mark Hyman. Uh, and that's where you find me on Instagram and uh, Facebook and Twitter. Love it. Well, the last question is that the last question that gets asked everybody on the Genius Life is more philosophical. Take it wherever you like. What does it mean to you to live a genius life? It means to um, be connected to what matters, um, to love, family, relationships, purpose, meaning. Um, and, and to be a contribution in the world and be in service. Uh, and, 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 and in that, in that vein, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of learning the things you need to learn to show up and be a better human, uh, is the most genius thing you can do. 
Yeah, love that. Well, thanks for your time, Marky Mark. Um, really, you know, any chance I get to chat to chat with you, I learn from you, I value you, and uh, I'm looking forward to joining you on your podcast soon at some point. I think we have that we have that on the calendar. So I'm pumped. Um, oh, you do. Yeah. To all you guys out there in podcast land, thank you so much for listening. I value your time and attention. Uh, do me a favor and spread the word about what we're doing here at The Genius Life. Share this episode of the show. Tag Dr. Hyman. Tag myself. Text me at 310-299-9401. Let me know what you thought about this episode, and I will catch you on the next episode. Peace out, guys.